About You isn't just a title, it does what it says on the tin. I am Sheila, your host, and I have conversations with people about their extraordinary lives and achievements as they follow their dreams. Past episodes have included a tattoo artist, a genealogist, an opera singer, a London black canby, and a yacht nanny to name a few. So now let's meet this week's guest. Welcome to another conversation on the All About You podcast. And today my guest is Shona, and we are talking about empowering creative minds. Shona, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Sheila. I am uh, very happy to be here. Thank you. So Shona, can we just talk about what exactly do we mean by empowering creative minds? Okay, so the reason that um, we settled on the name Empowering Creative Minds was because we want to do exactly that. We want to help learners all over the world to become more empowered in order to reach uh, their potential and to be able to, to build on their strengths neurodiverse people like myself are quite creative and so in an education system that doesn't always work towards that what we want to do is to help teachers to help their learners be more empowered with their creative minds and to use them to their advantage and to um, build on their potential for their future so that they can go off and do whatever it is that they want to do. So Shona, you've built a business now about empowering creative minds. Your background was in teaching. Can we just talk a little bit about why you decided to specialise in this area and to set up your business to help teachers to help those students? Absolutely. I mean, um, yes, I'm a secondary teacher um, and then I went on to teach at university level and still do. And really where where the whole inspiration came from was the fact that I am dyslexic myself. So I was diagnosed with dyslexia in the, um, the beginning of the second year of university. And for me, it was uh, as for many adults who get diagnosed, it was just a light bulb moment of so that's what it is. It's not that um, I don't belong here. It's not that I'm not as intelligent as everyone else. It's that my brain works in a different way. And so from there, I felt uh, quite truly more empowered because I had the understanding how my brain was working and processing information in, an, in a different way to people who are not dyslexic. And so then going on uh, and becoming a teacher and becoming an experienced teacher, especially with large groups of um, English as an additional language learners. So in schools, for example, that are um, international schools or private British schools um, throughout Europe, I saw and experienced a lot of learners that that I suspected possibly had cognitive challenges and because they were learning through an additional language I what I noticed and experienced myself as a teacher and um, as part of management was that quite often the teachers themselves didn't know when or couldn't uh, see the difference 
because they didn't have the training to know when there was a challenge that was cognitive or whether it was linguistic. A lot of the time it got put down to, oh, it must be because of the English, it must be because of the their linguistic levels. But um, there, there's a lot more to it. And so really my inspiration came from or my passion. I realized that that was my passion to be able to help teachers to understand better so that they then can identify earlier, can support within the classroom because support begins in the classroom and teachers have a lot of uh, pressure on them set on their shoulders. They have um, a lot of things that they have to do. I mean, I'm coming from a secondary point of view, but I know also primary are the same. We have a lot of curriculum aims we have to meet. We have a lot of um, external exams we have to get uh, students ready for. And so there are things that sometimes fall through the cracks. And if the teachers are armed with better uh, strategies that don't overwhelm them, that don't cause them more and more work because teachers don't need more work. They don't need to do more work. They do enough. And so then those who they can uh, suspect need a little bit more um, intervention, they can pass that information on to the appropriate person within the school, which would be i.e. the Senko or um, someone in management to then look further into what that particular need may be, whether it be uh, screening for dyslexia, for ADHD, whether it be a combination, whether it be just uh, intervention for literacy, intervention for numeracy or whatever that uh, the, the need may be. It could be also social and behavioural. It's a point of um, being able to give the teachers the strengths and the, and the awareness and the knowledge of what they can do without overwhelming them with even more things to prepare because they don't need that. But part and partial of teachers being more aware, teachers being being more prepared, classes and learners are more supported for both cognitive and linguistic um, areas. I'm going to ask to backtrack now. You said that was realised in your second year of university, you were dyslexic. So you had gone through junior school or primary you'd gone through secondary can you explain what it meant by being dyslexic when you were in your normal education what did or didn't you see that is different to a student who does not have dyslexia because I don't actually have a good understanding of what dyslexia is so can we go right back to basics Yes, absolutely. So I can tell you from my own personal experience, but I can also tell you from experience of teaching both one on one and uh, large classes um, of kids with uh, like statistically there would be four or five kids in the class who uh, were adolescents in the class who uh, were dyslexic or are dyslexic. Um, First and foremost, I think it's important to say that I'm still dyslexic. (laughs) When you are dyslexic, you are dyslexic your whole life. There's no cure. And uh, and I don't want a cure because with dyslexia comes as with ADHD, as with autism, as with praxia, um, dyscalculia, as with any neurodiverse uh, difference comes many strengths. 
we have many, many strengths that maybe others don't uh, have. Not to say that they they don't have any, but to say that we have particular strengths that can that empower us and empowering creative minds. Sometimes, for example, and I'll get back to some of that, because I think sometimes we we concentrate on, on on how you're negatively affected. But there's also the point of like, how are we positively affected? And um, for me, I can definitely see what, how I can see things. I can see patterns in uh, people's behavior. I can see patterns in particular projects. I can see how something in the how it's going to work in the big picture. And and while others are still uh, maybe talking about the nitty gritty, and I, I can see how it's going to pan out on the overall. And that has helped me to be able to to launch uh, to launch my business. Also quite creative way of thinking and problem solving and to be emotionally intelligent. Sometimes we are able to read the room quite well, able to notice other people's need for emotional support where others may not have noticed it. I I certainly, when I became aware of the strengths of dyslexia, I noticed that within myself that that's something that I'm quite good at it and I'm quite proud of that, that I can notice subtle changes in people's behaviour and their attitude and maybe when they need some some emotional support. So we have lots of creativity and lots of strengths that are something that teachers should be aware of as well, because you're not just being aware of the how it's hindering your learning, but also being aware of the strengths can help to be to be uh, flagged up and to be uh, recognized and diagnosed. I know, for example, just uh, Steve Jobs was was dyslexic and he's the inventor of the iPhone and no one could understand how how this we were going to have a computer in our pocket. And now we have a computer in our pocket. And he was quoted uh, saying that he could see in his mind's eye that this was going to work. He didn't quite know how it was going to get there and he needed the other people to be able to get it there. But he was able to do it in the end. But that's because we can be visionaries. We can be people who have a lot of strengths. We can see the wider picture and how it can fit together. And you have a lot of entrepreneurs who are who are dyslexic or ADHD and like to be able to to uh, work on their own because we're more comfortable in that uh, environment. Throughout school, for me, I just remember always feeling like I was the the one that I didn't want to be picked to read out loud because I felt I would struggle, I would stutter, which is something that I, I sometimes still do. But now I understand why. It's because my brain is processing the information. And I was in, in a monolingual school, so I was only learning uh, through English. I felt very embarrassed about being asked the times tables because I could not remember no matter how many times I marched up and down the kitchen, learning them by rote, they just would not stick. And that comes from reduced capacity of the working memory, which I, I now know. And I have strategies to work around that. And we need to have those strategies. I found spelling was horrendous. And I do not believe in rote spelling or spelling tests, to be quite honest, uh, summative spelling tests as in long lists of spelling out of context. I do not advocate them at all. And mental calculation, mental calculation was always something that was uh, was very challenging. And to this day is something that's very challenging. But we have a, com- a calculator in our pocket, so we no longer need 
to to worry so much about that. Always feeling a little bit, especially when I went to university, feeling I shouldn't quite be there. I didn't deserve to be there. Something went wrong. Someone made a mistake by letting me in, you know, feeling an, uh, that imposter syndrome that you didn't quite uh, fit in. You didn't quite deserve to be there. And the stress of having to work harder all the time, harder than everyone else, just to uh, achieve maybe not even the same results as other people, but enough to get past, enough to 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 get by and always being slightly disappointed in yourself uh, that you didn't get like everyone else seemed to be able to just study for a couple of days and pass the test and get high results, whereas you were studying for months and you just about scraped by. And and that is, um, you know, down to different uh, things I didn't know about myself and different teaching techniques that there were at the time. And I know from learners uh, that I work with that there's still one thing that always pops into my mind that they seem to say quite a lot. And they use this word is that I'm not stupid. And they use that word a lot. And I and I ask, why? Why do you use that particular word? Now, I understand. I, I, I understand because I felt stupid. You know, and people go, oh, why do you say that word? Shouldn't use that word. Well, that's how you feel. That is truly how you feel. You feel less than other people. And so I know from working with other learners, uh, they too have said that they, they, you know, we're not. Now we know, now that we understand that it's our ADHD, it's our dyslexia, it's our dyscalculia. Uh, now we understand, we know that we're not stupid. We're not different to other people. Our brains just work in a different way. Can, can we just look at the example of reading? You know, at school, it's typical. Everybody has to stand up and read out a paragraph and it goes around the classroom. So with dyslexia, is it the letters are jumbled? Is it the words are blurred? Is it the words are in the wrong order? What exactly is it that someone with dyslexia would or wouldn't see compared to somebody who hasn't got dyslexia if we take a page of text as an example? Well, that varies from person to person. OK, so dyslexia is, um, as is every neurodiverse difference, is very unique to the person. So I'm I'm dyslexic, but um, my dyslexia may be uh, different to someone else's. And dyslexia is um, doesn't correlate or connect in any way with IQ and it is on a continuum. So it could be someone who's severely dyslexic or someone who is mildly dyslexic. It's usually someone who is mildly or moderately dyslexic that goes undiagnosed, someone like myself that's just going under the radar and um, doesn't get picked up until adulthood. So for many years, the, the whole idea about dyslexia was that it was a visual thing. And just like you say, there's a misconception that dyslexia is, you know, jumbled up letters, you know, the words are blurred on the page, that things jump around. And that can be the case. That's more got to do with visual stress. And yes, visual stress is a part of uh, dyslexia, but it's not the most predominant part of dyslexia. So the most predominant part of dyslexia is actually the auditory uh, receptive skills. So we find it difficult to learn the nuances of the language. So the very small sounds, not the phonics. And I'm going to repeat that one again, not the phonics. 
but the phonological awareness of the language. And what I mean by the phonological awareness is the very subtle sound. So, for example, if I were to say to you the word cat and I asked you to take the k off that word, what would you have? At. Right. So that is a very basic type of phonological awareness skill and phonological awareness is extremely important for all learners but especially for dyslexic learners at that level from uh, EYFS so from infants right up all the time uh, going over phonological awareness the manipulation of words um, and sounds within words because sometimes we will not catch it right and so then the information that we do take in, it has to be transferred from one part of the brain to the other part of the brain, which takes longer um, for us to do and to process. And so sometimes in the middle, it gets a little bit warped and it gets a little bit, you know, recorded in the wrong way. So how does that then present when you're reading out loud in class? First and foremost, standing up as someone who feels that they can't do it in front of all of their other peers is horrendous. It is the worst thing that you can ask them to do or ask us to do. If we volunteer to do so, that's a whole different other thing. But if we don't want to do it, there shouldn't be any pressure to do it. Why? Because the anxiety and the stress make it three times, if not a hundred times worse than if we were doing it on a one-to-one -one with a teacher. And even that needs to build up the confidence. So, we then have to attack the sentence, attack the words. And so you're, what we're trying to do is break down the sounds within the words. And you're trying to do that as quickly as everyone else was able to do it. And sometimes, yes, you may muddle the words. You may see a particular word, which still happens to me all the time. I'll read a sentence and then I'll think, OK, I'll read the sentence and I'll say was determined. And then I go, no, that doesn't make any sense. And OK, it was deterred. So something that looks similar, a word that looks similar, we can confuse it. And it's only with practice that we get to realize that that actually that doesn't make sense within context. So the younger the students are, they don't know. And, and so how they're attacking the words is what they're trying to do is phonologically say the words out. They're trying to sound out everything. And if it hasn't been recorded correctly in their from their working memory, which is reduced, it hasn't been transferred uh, into their short term, long term memory correctly, then it's produced, pronounced wrong or incorrect in the class. And then they realize they've done it wrong and then brings, uh, provokes more stress. They can't do it at the same speed. They can't recognize or we can't recognize the intonation, the, the full stop, the commas. So it's the, a combination of a lot of different things that come in. To, I mean, reading a paragraph out in front of the whole class is even reading a paragraph out in front of the, the class myself, I would always have read it beforehand a few times in order to to be ready to do so and you get better as you get older as you have the right strategies but for younger uh, students it is it's a mix of things that you that you read words that are not there that you mix them up with fam other familiar words that you are not pronouncing the words correctly because for example there are particular words that we can say that we know 
that we've used a million times. But sometimes when you see it coming on the page, you see it coming down the line and you know, oh, I, can't, I don't know. I can't usually say this. I don't know how, how am I going to say it? How am I going to say it? And you get stuck and you get blocked and everyone looks at you. And so that is one of the, the most difficult things. So it's a, it's a massive combination of a lot of different things. Also, black on white can be something which is quite stressful for those people who suffer visual stress. Personally, I suffer visual stress, um, but not every dyslexic person does. But there's been a myth for quite a long time about Erlin syndrome. Erlin syndrome um, was always thought that if you were dyslexic, then you also had Erlin syndrome. And Erlin syndrome is, is within your eyes and it's basically got to do with visual stress. And we've now come to realize that actually there are people who have Erlin syndrome who are not dyslexic and vice versa. And so that's something that needs to be tested separately because not everyone who is dyslexic um, has Erlin syndrome or suffers from visual stress. If words and sentences are very small, blocked together, there's no pictures or visuals that can be quite daunting. And also, if a textbook is very busy, that is very distracting for us. We, we find it very distracting and not just dyslexia, but ADHD also find it very distracting. And so I would always recommend and do always recommend for teachers not to have anything around their, their whiteboards, because when you're trying to teach something on the board, it's too much for us. We get we're looking at the the pictures around the board are we looking at the butterfly that went by or we're looking at something and so it's 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 really important to try and keep focus on what you're you're actually looking at so if if they do ask to read out loud and the student is in agreement with this then it's good to block off that two or three sentences or paragraph depending on what it is they want them to read it's better to have larger font and it's better to have recycled paper off white color so that anyone who does have visual stress or suffer from that that it's it's more helpful hopefully now these things are picked up quite quickly when students are in primary school or do you think we've still got a long way to go i think we definitely still have a long way to go i think there's more awareness around neurodiversity in general um, however, there's a, a massive lack of good training for teachers. Everyone who becomes a teacher should, in my personal and professional opinion, should have at least a module or a good training course on neurodiversity. So they are able, they are prepared themselves to be aware of, OK, Maybe I shouldn't ask them all to stand up and say the times tables, which was absolutely horrendous for me also. Or spelling out loud or these long spelling tests with no context related to the to the words. There's a long way to go. Every teacher should be aware. Every teacher should be trained to to be able to better support and to know the strengths. It's not a negative thing. Being neurodiverse um, doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It means that we think in a different way. And let's be honest, everyone's brain is different anyway. Your brain is like your your fingerprint because 
how you have learned and the situation and the environment and, and everything that you learned in uh, was probably very different to what I learned in, which is very different to how my daughter learns. My daughter is trilingual and learns through two different languages. So, again, every brain is different anyway. So it's not really we should be teaching one way, which to be honest, we, we we still sort of are trained to teach in one particular way. We have moved on, particularly in the British education system, we have moved on and we've become a lot more, you know, we incorporate a lot more visual, kinesthetic and audio um, strategies. But there's more to be done. And there's teachers need help and teachers need time to have that help and they need time to be able to um, have their own cognitive breaks and to understand why those cognitive breaks are important for their learners too. So less pressure on teachers, more help and guidance for them so that they can then help and guide their learners better. The more aware we are, the, the more we can help, the more we can be inspiring and motivating and empowering for all of our learners. I mean, um, I think it's important to bring in that uh, there was a a theory uh, that was never actually scientifically proven and therefore has been debunked that uh, we are either visual, kinesthetic or auditory learners. And that is just not true. We all learn in a variety of ways. We all learn some things you may learn better if you're using uh, manipulatives with your hands. Some things you may learn if you're better if you're watching it and some things you may learn or, or you can use all of those different strategies for learning Spanish, for example, or for science or maths or whatever it is that you're, you're trying to learn. We are never just one type of learner. We know. So in a British classroom in an international classroom which it would uses uh, effectively uses content and language integrated learning you have the methodology there in place the pedagogy in place which shows that we need to use all of those areas kinesthetic audio and visual for me we need to take that a, a step further for everyone it damages no one and it helps everyone and that is to bring in just to pivot just to bring that step further and that is to be multi-sensory learning and that is that we're using all of our skills all of our senses to be able to learn whatever particular topic um, or theme it may be at that time. Does dyslexia follow in families? It definitely is it's hereditary Quite often when you speak to parents, um, they'll say, oh, yeah, or I am. Or they'll say, oh, yeah, we had an aunt or we had an uncle or a grandparent. Or grandma. Yes, it's very much it's it's hereditary. It's within the family. Also, what is a very um, particularly important thing to say and to mention is that everyone sort of has this idea that dis- it's, you know, you're dyslexic. OK, that's it. That's the answer. Well, no, they say up to between 25 to 30 percent of people who are dyslexic are also ADHD. So ADHD and dyslexia go together quite a lot. So do um, dyslexia and dyscalculia. You can have uh, dyslexia, ADHD and dyscalculia. You can have the trifecta. You can um, also be dyspraxic, all mix, and you can have lots of different characteristics. So when people think about dyslexia, for example, they think about reading and writing. But what they don't realize is there's also also mental calculation, 
personal organization, concentration, and speaking and pronunciation. So sometimes we'll stumble over words. Sometimes we'll get tongue tied and sometimes we stutter. Um, quite often when they think about concentration, they think, oh, ADHD. Well, no, not necessarily. And, and ADHD doesn't necessarily mean that you're hyperactive. It can be at the other end of the of the spectrum as well or continuum where you you move at a slower pace. Uh, you, and you can have interlinking characteristics. So it's not just black and white, one or the other. You can have a lot of different characteristics. And this is why it is very important for teachers to be aware of the different areas so that they can then see and identify the the, the challenges which kids are going through, the mental stress that they are going through because it's a huge cognitive load. Like you mentioned earlier about having to look out the window and having to, like and even the stress of the, the mental uh, maths, that puts a lot more stress on your cognitive load. So cognitive load it means that you get sort of stuck. You, you can't process everything that you need to process. And so it's very important for teachers to, to break down what needs to be done, to be clear about what needs to be done and um, also to repeat themselves in different ways so the kids can understand it, so adolescents can understand it and to, for them to understand that, OK, this because she's staring out the window doesn't necessarily mean she's not listening, which still happens today. Teachers would say, and I'm, uh, I remember being guilty of it myself at a time when you think you're not listening, you're looking out the window. But if I'd been aware of what I'm aware of now as a dyslexia specialist, then I would have known that maybe it wasn't that they weren't looking out the window. Maybe it actually was that they were trying to listen to me because I gestulate quite a lot as well. For teachers to have more um, awareness, also looking at siblings in the school, at cousins in the school, is there a pattern that's very important as well. And I think what is, is is very important to mention as well and for teachers to know that it is not their responsibility to approach parents or approach learners and say, I think you might be dyslexic, dyspraxic, ADHD, whatever. It is not the teacher's responsibility. And in fact, they should not do that because you don't know what reaction or how that could, what backlash there could be on there or how that it could affect the learner or the parent. What is important for teachers to do is to accumulate that information, their awareness of what the strengths that they've seen, the challenges that they've noticed with cognitive load, memory and so on and so forth, and pass that on up through the hierarchy of the school so that the school then approaches uh, the family to take and correct appropriate steps for the learner. So Shona, can we talk briefly about the testing process? They've identified a child that they believe it's a good idea to do some testing. What sort of form does that testing take? What is recommended by the DFE and what is uh, the Department of Education in the UK and also what is uh, comes off the back of Rose 2009, which is available on Google, research that was done um, back in 2009 and is still very much um, valid and is recommended. And it basically is where you have certain steps. And first is good quality teaching. And that is your main classroom teacher that knows the right strategies and is doing their best. 
even with their best efforts, there are there's still issues coming up and they still need more help. OK, so then there should be well-founded intervention and well-founded intervention would be whether taken maybe on a one-to-one or um, in a small group to have particular areas uh, reinforced. If that persists, then what they say is that that a learner should, be, if we're talking about dyslexia, so should be put forth, as I'm a dyslexia specialist, I'll, I'll, I'll speak about this, should be put forth then for uh, screening. Now, screening is an essential and a very important part of the process because after screening comes assessment and diagnosis, which is great and is very good and is very helpful because you have the psychologist, the educational psychologists or specialist teachers or assessors um, report that can be brought on for exams, can be given on to the school. And, and it's really good for mindset, I believe. I really feel that it's really good for mindset and, and understanding for the learner. And you can jump. And a lot of the time people jump and parents jump from suspecting to assessment, which, OK, you can do that. But what an assessment for me doesn't do is tell you the gaps, the cognitive gaps that there are. So the assessment will be and I'm not an assessor, so I'm not going to uh, to go too deeply into into that area. It's something that is uh, when I was assessed myself, I can talk about that where I was uh, certain I had to do some phonological awareness activities. I needed to manipulate sounds, read out loud, move particular things um, with my hands, listening, pronunciation, spelling. And that's back in 2002. So it may have changed and become a little bit more progressive now. There's a lot of tech out there for screening. I don't recommend personally or professionally. I don't recommend getting screened by AI or getting screened by um, a test and taking that as gold, because at the end of the day, a person screening is much more effective. And that is um, something where you would sit down with the learner and go through some particular activities to be able to spot, especially then the cognitive gaps for phonological awareness, for the particular sounds and manipulation of sounds, looking at memory and how they are able to hold certain amount of information within their working memory for, and for how long or was it recorded correctly, looking at reading, looking at um, moving particular items and how they go about it and with your motor control. And it really, really goes into a deep analysis of what is what needs to be gone, you know, gone over. And then what, what a screener does is they go on to write uh, a personalised curriculum and then that uh, would be taught by a specialist teacher or someone very close uh, to that um, to help fill those cognitive gaps. So even those cognitive gaps persist and it definitely go on for uh, assessment. But if they don't persist, then it may be a case of, well, we don't think that they are dyslexic. So um, it may have just been the situation. They changed schools or they they had parents who got divorced during that time or parent a grandparent who passed away or there was something else that happened that affected their them at that particular time. And they didn't quite learn those areas for mental maths, for example, as well as another area. It isn't always necessary to have the assessment. The assessment is good and, and I advocate assessment. But what I also advocate is even if you have an assessment, go back and get a screening. 
because there is where you really find out the particular areas, the very, very small uh, phonological sounds that need to be gone over again, that weren't recorded properly the first time um, and that need a lot of work. You do a lot of overlearning. Overlearning means like going over things and gradually accumulating and uh, gradually increasing the, the difficulty, but building on repetition, repetition, repetition in order for them to to fill all those cognitive gaps and to be able to read with more fluency and accuracy and teaching them strategies to cope with the way that they learn, because we as individuals all need to learn how do we cope? So I, for example, always have mind maps all around my office and I have pictures up of things that I need to remember and I use different colors and that helps me. I know some kids who hate mind maps, but they like to do it in a different way. If you can draw it, whatever way works for you and you learn that that works for you, those are skills that you will take on for the rest of your life into your work, into your own career. And so it's really important that they that they're taught not just what they're missing cognitively, but also strategies to cope and to realize that, okay, I can learn this. It's going to be harder for me than everyone else, or it feels like it's harder for me than everyone else, but I have strategies and ways of going around it. I mean, Shona, this is such a complex subject. It's absolutely fascinating. Shona, there is so much we can cover here, but If people want to get in touch with you, whether we've got educators listening, parents, grandparents, students, where can people get in touch with you, Shona? Because I think there's a lot of people would want, Okay, I'm not sure, but I think I might have something, but I couldn't. I don't think it's dyslexia, I don't think it's ADHD. Where can people contact you just to have an initial chat with you? We do screen. For dyslexia and um, we're still building out the team for um, our neurodiverse experts and we have some coming on this uh, this year which we're super excited about. Mainly the objective of empowering creative minds is to go into and what we do is go into schools and go into conferences to teach and train teachers to be more aware and to give them the strategies to be able to help at the first stage which is uh, first to quality teaching and so the first place you would go to find out about us would be empoweringcreativeminds.com. And that, that's our website. If you wanted to contact me directly, you can contact Shona at empoweringcreativeminds.com or uh, my colleague Jed, G-E-D, at empoweringcreativeminds.com. Um, we're also on Instagram at empoweringcreativeminds2021. Uh, and we're on LinkedIn. Um, we are on Facebook as well. Yeah, I think that's all the areas we're, we're, we're on at the moment. Uh, the main would be uh, Instagram and, and LinkedIn are our main areas of focus. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel um, where I give lots of tips for parents, for teachers. Um, and that, is, again, is called Empowering Creative Minds uh, on YouTube. And uh, we've just recently launched a parents support community for parents because a lot of the time parents don't know what to do at home. 
and how to help at home. And we've been inundated in the last year with parents reaching out with kids uh, that they suspect to be autistic or dyslexic or ADHD and wanting help and guidance. And so we decided that the best thing to do to reach uh, everyone and help everyone on a global scale was to start the parents cre- uh, support community. And I will pass on the, the link for that uh, to you as well. Shona, thank you so much. It has been such a fascinating conversation. We've covered an awful lot in the hour we've been talking. Shona, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Sheila. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed this conversation. Please hit subscribe on whichever platform you are using. It is free. And if you're interested in sharing your own story, please reach out to me at allaboutyoupodcast at yahoo.com and let's tell your story.